The super slaps the door of 12A with his big hand. But I just gave you $60. Nobody's ever squeezed me for more than 60 He's having trouble keeping his trembling arms still at his chest. No, he wouldn't mind taking a swipe at her. You place $60 in my pocket. I don't think I implied by my behavior that I wanted you to bribe me, nor have I made any statement or gesture, such as an outstretched palm, for example, saying that I would change my report because you gave me money. If you want to give away your hard-earned money, Lila May waves her hand towards a concentration of graffiti. I see it as a curious, although in this case, fortuitous habit of yours that has nothing whatsoever to do with me or why I'm here. chair. What does it mean, the empty chair? The same chair I'm sitting in. Jesse's empty chair and microphone. Jesse Duke sits in a neutral location with a Herman Miller Aeron chair and exquisite toned microphone. The microphone is not lacking for exquisiteness of design and purpose. Are you being Colson Whitehead? Are you Colson Whiteheading me? <laughs> I realized as I was saying that, I was aiming first for Richard Foreman, uh, the director of Ontological Hysterical, uh, a theater oh. company in New York City, uh, who would often heckle his own actors from the audience with a microphone and a PA system. Like playing wild sound cues that they weren't mm. prepared for and saying things like, I wonder what I'm going to do next uh, <laughs> as they performed the plays in front of them. That sounds uh, very it, annoying. It was awesome. Oh, really? It, it, was, it was great because everybody, everybody knew that was going to happen. Um, he would sort of punctuate performances with the sounds of like shattering glass uh, it was, it was, I don't know if he's still alive. I don't know if ontological hysterical is still going. Um, hmm. they, they, they sort of squatted in St. Mark's cathedral for like 25 <laughs> years or something. They're part of that downtown experimental theater scene with like the Worcester group, um, which is awesome where you could go and see like Willem Dafoe in like wildly experimental theater pieces like a week after seeing him in you know speed two right i i think i've heard him talk about that a little bit maybe on like the wtf podcast or or uh, bullseye or something like that um yeah yeah i'm in a new very neutral location i know um, i know it's like <laughs> i feel like I'm, i feel like i'm speaking to you in some sort of office setting i've been doing a lot of travel so i just kind of got back into town last night and the, the people I'm house sitting for just took the train to New York where they're going they are going to take the Queen Elizabeth II uh, to England what? and then be gone oh my god them. no yeah, way <laughs> yeah don't tell their kids it's a surprise the kids that like the okay, kids well, are like 14 we'll edit that out too <laughs> well in the like six weeks it takes to produce this episode they'll they'll be back they'll have Hopefully. gone and returned they'll have gone um, and returned exactly exactly oh my god that's amazing i didn't uh, i didn't know that that was something you could still do and that's rad yeah apparently and it's still the canard canard 
line or canard canard i believe yeah they still run mm-hmm. yeah i don't know when the queen elizabeth ii was built but i'm guessing in the 50s or i think it in a it in of itself is now a grand old ship because yeah. the queen elizabeth the first i know is used as a troop transport trip ship in the world war ii um, mm-hmm. and it, it was basically like it could go 40 knots, so they didn't worry about submarines because, like, by the submarines could figure... by the t- They didn't have airplanes that could bomb it then, and by the time the submarines could figure out where it was, it was they they were much too slow to, to torpedo huh. it. Nice. I didn't know that. I, I know there's an episode yeah. of The Queen that, uh, that sort of dramatizes... I'm trying to figure... I'm trying to remember which season of The Queen it was. And there's an episode about the decommissioning of one of the Queen Marys... Um, and I don't know which one, um, but yes, I think both Queen Mary's were decommissioned because the Queen Mm -hmm. Mary, actually this came up in another upper middle brow episode and I incorrectly Mm -hmm. said that it was permanently anchored at San Diego. It is in fact permanently anchored in Long Beach, another lovely Southern California, uh, port of call. And, uh, (laughs) And, um, yeah, and so the Queen Elizabeth, there was a QE1. There might be, I don't know how many Queen Marys there were. Um, I, guess, I would mm-hmm. guess it was the Queen Elizabeth II, since the, the crown is about Queen Elizabeth, and it would be right. a I was wondering, I was, like, I was like, that would be weird if it was the Queen. Yeah, so maybe yeah. it was the Queen Elizabeth I getting dramatized, being decommissioned sometime in the 80s, which I that feel make like makes kind of sense. Maybe like 70s, like late 70s, early 80s. I don't know. Um that I mean, where sense. in the world would we find all this information? Uh, um, yeah, I was, gonna, I was just going to say, like, you know, only we had It's probably in the same place where you learn how to pronounce Stephen Shock's last name. <laughs> <laughs> that was <Zing>. awesome. <laughs> that, little, that little addition, you were like, I didn't get it right any of the times. <laughs> right. And, and to my credit, <laughs> listener, I, I could have cut out all of those feeble attempts mm-hmm. to pronounce his name. But uh, yeah. uh, in the interest of ta- transparency and humor, uh, uh-huh. I let poor Jesse of the past during the taping flail in his attempt to, to pronounce <laughs> Stephen Shock uh, for the sake of the enjoyment of Jesse of the, the, the future. Oh, it's like the opposite of when, uh, or the present. It's, it's like the opposite of when you stay up too late and party too hard. You're sort mm-hmm. of punishing your future self when you do that. <laughs> and then I'm instead punishing my past self. Yeah. The, the, the Maddox one, like when you said Doug Maddox, I was like, Doug Maddox. I was like, is there another Maddox? And I was like, well, Jesse's a lot better with his like baseball people than I am. I'm just gonna roll with that. Like I have that's, weird, uh, that one's... I have weird, I have weird substitution things that my brain will uh-huh. do, where I know who the person is and I'll know what the word is. Also, the fact that I continually referred to the College World Series as the World Series of Baseball too, which is <laughs> in my head. I'm mashing up the College World Series and the World Series of Poker because in my uh-huh. head, the World Series of something is the proper kind of prefix phrase that you use when you're like, it's not really the World Series, but then calling it the World Series of Baseball is a sort of funny <laughs> it's, it's like it's like a It's like the definition of a tautology. Yeah, like, it is. You know, it's like the Baseball World Series of Baseball. The, yeah, exactly is, exactly. is where we're at. Um, you know, yeah. a phrase that I wouldn't wouldn't be out of place in the the book that uh, that we're considering today. I didn't right. realize when I was doing my my Jesse's chair bit when you weren't there, until you said, "Are you being Colson Whitehead?" I was like, 
I really am sort of speaking quite a bit like like the uh, the narration of this book. Anybody um, who could really, though, render the narration of this book off the cuff, unrehearsed, would be a genius. Holy shit! It, it, <laughs> uh, impossible. Yeah, <laughs> like you can you can maybe imitate it in the same way that somebody can imitate a Scottish accent and summon the idea of a Scottish accent, but you. Uh, it would take a literary genius to yeah. simply speak Colson Whitehead. Every sentence is a kind of literary poetic triumph, or, yeah. or many of the sentences are. There is a tremendous amount of micro-level craft, I think, in this book. Uh, I had to stop adding book darts to yeah. my book yeah. uh, because it was getting too heavy. Yeah, no, I was definitely was like, oh, that's the excerpt I'm going to prepare. Oh, no, wait, no, that's, oh, no, wait, that's the excerpt I'm going to prepare. Yeah. It's, and I was like, you know what? For my reading, I'm going to open the book at random and pick a section, and it's going to be it's fucking It's going to be great. great. <laughs> uh, well, should we get into it? Do you have any other business before the court today? <laughs> that's funny. My trivia does involve some court uh, action, uh, uh, but uh, n- n- none before a judicial court. Well, let's uh, let's get going. We're go- we're talking today on yep. Middlebrow about Colson Whitehead's 1999 debut novel, uh, The Intuitionist. This was one of your selections uh, from our draft. This rounds out our series, Black SFAF, where we have uh, looked at Octavia E. Butler's Parable of the Sower, N.K. Jemison's uh, the fifth season, and now Colson Whitehead's *The Intuitionist*. Um, I'm intrigued. What uh, what made you go and reach for this book in the first place? Um, you know, I have read at least one or two Colson Whitehead short stories, and I have read his most recent novel, *Harlem Shuffle*, which I really liked. I have been meaning to read The Nickel Boys and The Underground Railroad for some time, but I haven't done it because they both seem like a bummer, Um, and I I should. Um, And in fact, now I think I'm I'm all the more motivated to. Um, But I just, it was, I don't know, I was looking for black science fiction, and I was kind of looking at some lists, and this one was kind of a fun outlier to me because it's his first novel, He's pretty well regarded, but he is not thought of as a speculative fiction writer, really, even though some of his, you know, the Underground Railroad clearly has elements of science fiction to it, as I understand it. Um, and it, it just, it, it had that, you know, there wasn't that much about it out there compared to how much I've heard about Colson Whitehead. And so to me, it just felt sort of fun to go back to the beginning. It's his first novel of a pretty mm-hmm. well-established novelist. And I had the sense in reading the um, plot recap that it was a kind of pastiche, a sort of noir pastiche, and I liked that. Um, The description of it, uh, I found it very striking, and it it suggested to me that it would be kind of its own lovely self-contained world, much like Jonathan Lethem's The Arrest, and I would say that that had proved exactly uh, yes. correct. So, you know, it was just a little bit of a, like, Googling around and being sort of like, that sounds great, let's read that. I knew that Colson Whitehead was a writer with tremendous talent and power, and I kind of, I think of him as in sort of a pack with uh, James McBride and maybe, maybe even Walter Mosley, sort of mm-hmm. like three middle-aged black writers who are all very talented, and 
of the three, he's always seemed like maybe like they're all brilliant and inventive and funny and interesting in their own ways. But Colson Whitehead's sentences just seem um, delicious. And, and oh my god, yeah, that's a great a word for them. And I mean, you know, like maybe the I, Lethem's got some of it. Michael Shabon, similar sort of seventh sentence level level brilliance, going back a ways, like. Melville, you know, yeah, maybe, totally. Um, maybe uh, Dickens. In fact, I feel like that sort of wry understatement, such that things are sort of understated in almost a genteel way that that gives you the sort of dark brilliance of it. Um, and that that's in other books of his that I've read. So yeah, that's that's my basic answer to that question. Yeah, I, I, I'm very excited to talk about it. Like you, like you texted me last week. This book is a delight, and I was like, yeah. "Yes, this book is it, a delight," it, and I'm excited to to chat. It is a delight, and I would say it is. Con- even though it is, you know, it, it concerns, I think, similar spiritual and social criticisms as N.K. Jemisin and mm-hmm. as Octavia Butler. I find it more fun uh, mm-hmm. than those two books. I will just start our recap here, which is to say yeah. that our protagonist is Lila Mae Watson, and she is an elevator inspector for a major northeast me- in a n- major northeast metropolitan city that is it is completely recognizable as New York, although I believe that is never said. Um, right, she seems it's to never... live in Harlem, and that is never. Ex- said it is simply described yeah um we do know that there it is a the most famous city in the world and there are tunnels from new jersey to the city so i can't think of another major city that has tunnels to new jersey that i'm aware of um and there's something about the the new york of um i haven't read the book but the new york of um motherless brooklyn like the, mm. like 19 late 1940s early 1950s my i don't know if we're ever given a date but my guess is early 1950s given sort of the language and some of the pop culture references we're clearly after world war ii um but we we're not quite into the 1960s yet and um um and yeah so lila may watson is an elevator inspector and we learn very quickly that she is an intuitionist and that there is a kind of schism among elevator inspectors in New York um, and the, the, ele- the whatever the elevator inspector bureau is it's called something like the Bureau of Elevator Inspection or Elevator Safety or something is a, it's a municipal office that goes around and inspects the elevators in apartment buildings and office buildings and some of the elevator inspectors are intuitionists and some of them are empiricists and empiricists they have a number of very objective tests that they do to ascertain the condition of an elevator, whereas an intuitionist does something like magic, maybe, or maybe it's something more like a doctor listening to somebody breathing and and being able to hear a thrombosis or a uh, or you know a hearing an aortic aneurysm from the sound uh, of the heart it's a little bit unclear whether this is magic or whether this is some kind of human capacity to imagine the elevator as a complete system and by listening and touching and probing um, sensing without even entering the elevator shaft what might be right or wrong about this particular elevator. But she's very much an intuitionist. She's been trained 
at what was it the Insti- the Midwest Institute of Vertical Studies or something Which like that? Which is like the I, most I think- prestigious uh, institute or uh, higher learning for elevator. I mean, like, yeah, we're gonna talk more about this. There, yes. there is a lovely whole infrastructure of elevator technology and knowledge. Com- Largely fictitious, a investigative yeah. magazine about the trade of elevation Lift, and called elevation. Lift. Called Lift. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and so, you know, and very quickly we go from fun and games to a problem. Uh, we see yeah. her kind of doing what she's doing, but within the first chapter, we learn that something has gone wrong and that an elevator mm-hmm. that she inspected uh, went into um, freefall. And nobody was harmed, but this was in City Hall, in a, or, or kind of something like City Hall, in a building uh, named Fannie after... The Fannie Briggs Memorial the, Building. The uh, Fannie Briggs Memorial Building. Yeah, which, which is a nod. It's a, to, it's a token nod. Uh, it's, the, mm-hmm. it's the one government building in this particular city that has been named after a black person. Um, and in order to maybe perhaps secure the vote of the black, or in this book, they're, they're called colored... Uh, vote of the elevator y- inspector unions. My, I actually, one of my readings is a sort of description of the politics of that. Um, uh, Fanny Briggs being a kind of strong analog for Harriet Tubman. Um, so that's that's kind of that's our inciting incident. Um, Lila mm-hmm. May Watson, and and very quickly, Lila May learns, figures out essentially that. First of all, this is fishy because she's very good at her job. We're made to understand. And elevators very rarely have a total free fall collapse. If they fail, there's all sorts of safeguards. So it just feels like something is wrong. And um, sort of our one of our antagonists, uh, Mr. Kenker, the head of uh, the uh, guild and also sort of the chief chief empiricist is running to be president of the elevator guild and he is using this incident as a way to kind of stick it to the um uh the intuitionists in a way and sort of suggest that because not only um not only was this elevator inspector a woman and a colored quote quote unquote colored woman at that which are two strikes against her but she also was an intuitionist uh so he seems to be using this for political gain and there's some insinuation that he may have even you know, set her up and caused the accident. Um, so yeah, that's our inciting incident. Do you want to sort of talk about our other major characters a little bit, or yeah, go sure. into? Um, mm-hmm. You've got this bullet point in here about intuitionists versus empiricists, which uh, sure. I think we've covered. But yeah, like you said, they intuitionists just are are the stand-in for the feeling crowd. Um, I, I think this book really owes a. This book has a real like 18th century analog um, in mm. terms of the divide between the Enlightenment and the Romantics. Mm. Like I think that's like one of the conflicts that's lurking behind here um, of like basically Newton versus Byron <laughs> is kind of like it, what we're is, is sort of the is kind of the parallel here. It, it's um, interesting though because I also see it as a kind of like maybe metaphor for race and maybe a metaphor oh. for kind of working knowledge versus sort of uh, empirical positive knowledge that you can prove. And and particularly the empiricists also seem to stand in for the kind of toxic, like, if it can't be measured, it can't be managed. Um, And like, and, and you can also really feel, you can see how the seeds of that particular 
um, way of thinking has showed up in our own particular political climate with whataboutisms and all sorts of like very bad false dichotomies um, that are very often um, dispersed in the spirit of racial controversy. Right, right. And we should say Lila Mae Watson is not the first black elevator inspector, but the first black woman. Um, yes. And, um, and actually, well, um, you know, we can start listing our other major characters. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we have Mr. Reed, who yeah. is um, not the leader of the uh, intuitionists, but maybe sort of like the man he's he's technically works for the leader whose name is Orville yeah. Lever but he's, we have the sense that he's, he's Carl the brains Rove. yeah, yeah he's, he's like the, the brains Carl, of the like operation the Carl Rove. yeah, yeah. strategist yeah, and one. also a little bit of enforcement too uh, he, he you know uh, sort of like Carl Rove mixed with the lawyer who sort of shows up with the and says can I can I see the warrants boys uh, your warrants are not in order um there's Mr. Kenker we already mentioned who is running um for president of the guild, uh, the empiricist. There's Pompey, who was the first um, black elevator inspector. And I can't remember if he is ever referred to explicitly as a, quote, Uncle Tom. Um, but he is he is described as painfully obsequious um, yeah. and, and somewhat pitiable, but also morally compromised, perhaps. He does not appear to be on Lila May's side. He is the figure uh, that, like, like when you want to foment, fo like, foment racial division, um, he is being used as he is kind of pitted against the other black character, Lila May, um, by the rest of this organization, which is almost exclusively like non-black. Um, but yeah, he fills that space of um, finding ways to keep other groups of people fighting each other rather than being able to unite for some sort of common purpose, which, which really does seem to keep coming up in this book. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say that there's a, a tremendous personality difference between him. And in yeah. fact, my first reading um, sort of lays out um, Lila May's character and her approach to things more generally. Uh, we have Chuck Gould, and I'm not, I'm not sure we ever hear that he is Jewish, but Gould is quite often a Jewish name, and it would make sense. He's sort of Lila May's one ally, and he is an escalator man, not an elevator <laughs> man, which makes him sort of literally a redheaded stepchild in the department. Um, and, you know, there's also a sense that because maybe he's Jewish, it's sort of like what we were talking about with um, the talented Mr. Ripley, that he he's not entirely waspy. So mm -hmm. he, he he's riding coach class in the white boat, you know, um, yep. that and so that to some degree, maybe he has experienced some ethnic prejudice and maybe that gives him something in common with Lila May, too. Um, and he just seems like a, 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 a straight up good guy as well. Mm -hmm. Um, we have James Fulton, who is deceased, um, and uh, but is the dean of elevator inspectors and something of an intellectual hero uh, to Lila May, um, and a kind of a theorist, somebody who taught and wrote very arcane things about elevators and elevator inspection. Uh, there's Natchez, who is a handsome, young, 
black man who appears to be working at Intuitionist House, which is a kind of mansion where the intuitionists sort of have their seat of power. Uh, but he's mysterious. Um, mm. And his story is a little bit thin. Um, and we don't know, is he mysterious because he's romantically attracted um, to Lila May, or is he mysterious for other reasons? Not quite sure. President. Oh, and I should mention there's also the woman who inherited uh, James Fulton's house uh, yes, and property. Um, right, and, uh, and his papers. Um, his papers. Very, right. very important uh, aspect right. and, and very funny section about uh, the dust up between the Institute and James Fulton and uh, trying to get a handle on his diary, uh, which becomes important plot-wise because right. this book uh, very quickly turns into a fetch quest. We're, yep. we're after a MacGuffin. Uh, the missing diary pages of James Fulton, who apparently was working on something called a black box. That sounds like, I, I love the descriptions of it, um, it sounds like an elevator that can convey people through the air without really existing in a physical place. It's it's Willy Wonka's Great Glass Elevator. Yeah, exactly. Um, it is an elevator designed from an elevator's perspective. Um, <laughs> it is as if the elevator had the power. There's something arcane um, yeah. about James Fulton's relationship yeah. to elevators. So there is this idea that perhaps he designed an elevator that will make all the current elevators... Um, superficial, unimportant um, of the past that will transcend the current elevators. And given that this is an election year, uh, James Fulton is very much was very much an intuitionist. Um, so if this is true, it would be a real feather in the cap for the intuitionists in their conflict with the empiricists. Um, and yes, so everybody wants this, including the antagonists. Um, I'm going to just do a quick reading. This is um, from pretty early on, but I I like this because it kind of establishes um, Lila May's character pretty early on. This is in the first chapter. Um, so she is inspecting an elevator in a, an apartment building, and she is determined that there's something wrong with it. And she's told the super superintendent this. The superintendent thinks she's shaking him down for a bribe. Um, mm -hmm. And right before this passage has tucked $60 into her breast pocket, um, thinking that she wants a bribe. Um, so uh, the super slaps the door of 12A with his big hand. But I just gave you $60. Nobody's ever squeezed me for more than 60 He's having trouble keeping his trembling arms still at his chest. No, he wouldn't mind taking a swipe at her. You place $60 in my pocket. I don't think I implied by my behavior that I wanted you to bribe me, nor have I made any statement or gesture, such as an outstretched palm, for example, saying that I would change my report because you gave me money. If you want to give away your hard-earned money, Lila May waves her hand towards a concentration of graffiti. I see it as a curious, although in this case, fortuitous habit of yours that has nothing whatsoever to do with me or why I'm here. Lila May starts down the stairs. After riding elevators all day, she looks forward to walking downstairs. If you want to try and take your $60 off me, you're welcome to try. And if you want to challenge my findings and have another person double-check the overspeed governor, that's your right as a representative of this building. But I am correct. Lila May abandons the super on the 12th floor with the Arbo Smooth Glide. The super cusses. She's right about the overspeed governor. She's never wrong. She doesn't know yet. 
which is how the chapter ends. There's so much about this book that is just damn good. <laughs> um, I I think I, I kind of want to you to talk about this section as combined with like my next question, sure. and which my my next question was about like like how do we get situated in this world? And this reading is like early enough. And I wanted to ask you, what was your experience of beginning to realize what this world entailed and what was in it? And how does this particular passage evince this world for you? Yeah, you know, I'm trying to remember what the first paragraph was, which I'm not remembering right now. So I'm going to actually take a quick look. Because um, this is not too far in, but it's not... I'm not sure if it's the very first scene. It might be. She doesn't know what to do with her eyes for this movie. Who's scared to go? Okay, yeah. This is the first scene. So the very first thing that she's doing is going to this building... And she's reading the log of other elevator specter inspectors, like reading it in people who've come before her. Um, and that is very much world building. Um, yeah, very quickly, we're getting the sense of who she is and what she's doing, which is inspecting the elevator in this building. She's working for an organization or an agency, a bureaucratic agency that's doing that. And, you know, in in we're getting the description of the elevator we're getting the description of the building we're getting these very arcane descriptions of things like overspeed governors which i'm not even sure if that's a real thing or not there's a lot of elevator technical jargon that may or may not have come out of trade magazines uh so all that's happening but then you're also getting you're getting this kind of yawning expanse of inspectors, the routine of elevator inspection. That this is something that happens from time to time, that there's different elevator inspectors, that some of them look for certain types of things like stress or certain, I think she says this one elevator inspector has this one thing that he always looks for. And then, of course, in this scene, you get the sense that it's not uncommon for elevator inspectors to kind of shake down building supers for a bribe, that there's a kind of rigmarole. And very quickly we learn that Lila May is outside of that. I think we learn very quickly that she's black, that she's a woman, that she is maybe the first black woman to have this position, that she is not corrupt. She's not asking for bribe, nor would she accept a bribe. But at the same time, she's also not entirely ethical either, that, that because she does not return the $60, which might be the strictly most ethical thing to do, and that, that there's a sense in which that she's, she's not going to be corrupted, but at the same time, she's going to take whatever edge she can get. And in this case, this man has put $60 in, in, in her pocket, and, you know, as she says... You may try to remove it, um, which I don't know exactly what she's suggesting, but one senses is that she also is something of a, a physical fighter. Uh, she's formidable. Mm -hmm. She's not physically intimidated uh, by men, and, and that comes up later, and that she's entering the world with a kind of almost preemptive belligerence that it's not, it's not to say that her conduct is, is rude or not correct, but at the same time, she is not going to back down uh, from a confrontation, and I don't think we see her do that. Um, so that's all. Those are all the things I'm I'm seeing, and I feel like we're getting the world very very quickly. Um, yes, 
Yeah, that was that was why I asked this question. I feel like within the first chapter, we sort of know her world. I mean, partly that it's it's recognizable, right? Like if you've read Motherless Brooklyn, if you've read uh, Raymond uh, Chandler or Dashiell Hammett novels or watched the movies that were made from them, those were maybe more in L.A., but we're in kind of that same sort of you know, 1940s, 1950s, maybe 1960s corrupt crime novel with grimy offices and bureaucracies and people shaking down bribes and, you know, people, you know, being kind of uh, oppressed by their superiors and complaining about their dumb luck and, you know, getting intelligence and information from their one buddy in the department. We're in that world so very quickly. Um, And it's familiar... uh, a world where the mob, instead of uh, instead of controlling uh, the waste disposal, the mob uh, the mob controls the contracts for the elevator inspections. <laughs> They're in deep. Mister Shush has his Mr. has his Shush, paws. I know, I love it. The the mob his boss. Paws all over it. Yeah, and and I think that Colson White is showing a very strong mastery for kind of the synecdoche or metonymy that you need to do with these things. A sort of recognition that the reader probably doesn't. These things need merely to be hinted at to some degree because this is pastiche. We're operating in a kind of, you know, corrupt bureaucratic detective story, crime novel genre. So you don't have to explain everything. People are kind of familiar with that genre enough. Um, but then y- you can also tell that there's enough going on that it's not going to feel like a formulaic version of them. I mean, the fact that it's it's not a murder department, it's not an insurance yeah. investigator, they're elevator inspectors. And the fact that we're looking at the very earliest phases of racial integration in a corrupt mm-hmm. city, like already there, there's already enough twists to show us that this is a little bit different than anything like that we've read before. Yeah. And I think what's so fun about it is that you're exactly right. Like there's enough things that are recognizable that we feel grounded in the world through that. Like, I love that he never names that it's New York, but it's so clearly New York. Um, And I really feel like this, I mean, in one of our previous, so in one of our summer reading episodes, um, talking about the space between worlds by Micaiah Johnson, um, that is a book about alternate realities. And I feel like this particular world, Earth, whatever, is is our world, but for some reason, like the he's like twisted a little bit in such a way that instead of the like instead of like the internet or the gramophone or the radio or baseball or something like that, the world has been obsessed with elevators <laughs> and like is it that is it that the world is obsessed with elevators or is it that we're just living in the the, the characters who happen to be obsessed with with elevators maybe but there does seem to be this like this sort of liturgical attention to this thing that keeps getting called verticality yeah. and and very quickly you you begin realizing i you know i know that i'm always like the one who's searching for like metaphor and allegory mm. allegory um, but like, it's so obvious that this concept of verticality, yes, it is about the actual physical growing of buildings, but that there's really something about social mobility that is just wrapped around, uh, all of the ideas here. Um, and he's managing to pull off what is essentially a like comic novel and like serious 
racial satire and I think noir. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, it's so funny that you brought up Dashiell Hammett. Like, as soon as we got uh, to meet Mr. Reed with his sort of like cane tapping, not really looking her in the face, I was like, oh my God, it's Gutman from the Maltese Falcon. Mm-hmm. Like, just that same kind of over the top. Um, well, you've been set up, kid. And so, what you were going to yeah. do, your name's going to be cleared and. You know, you'll be back at work on Monday. And she's like, no, I won't, because I'm going to go find the black box. And I was like, this is great. (laughs) Like, we're just like, (laughs) we're off to like, this is hitting everything I want this to be. It's like Michael Chabon crossed with Dashiell Hammett, crossed with like a bunch of other marvelous stuff, um, all done in service of... What I'm pretty sure is like a, a like a really strong piece of racial satire. Um, I've got um, I've got Jonathan Swift's modest proposal pulled up because mm. I think Dickens is a great parallel, and I think Swift is the other parallel um, sure. because really those are the you know the two great satirical writers of their time um, doing a very similar thing. I think Swift is probably a little bit more in in Colson Whitehead's um, vein in that he is taking a recognizable world and twisting it slightly. Um, but I mean, I'm not going to malign Dickens in any particular way. <laughs> right, right. Do you want to read some of the Swift? Yeah, for sure. I, and the reason I, I thought of this is like Swift has the same, not the same diction, but you really have to keep track of what's happening in each sentence. That's kind of mm-hmm. the joy of this novel is like these glittering sentences. But um, let's just do the first uh, the first two paragraphs of A Modest Proposal. This shouldn't take me too long. Okay. So this is 1729, A Modest Proposal. Um, it is a melancholy object to those who walk through this great town or travel in the country when they see the streets, the roads, and the cabin doors crowded with beggars of the female sex, followed by three, four, or six children, all in rags, and importuning every passenger for an alms. These mothers, instead of being able to work for their honest livelihood, are first to employ all their time in strolling to beg sustenance for their hapless infants who, as they grow up, either turn thieves for want of work or leave their dear native country to fight for the pretender in Spain or to sell themselves to the Barbados. I think it is agreed by all parties that this prodigious number of children in the arms or on the backs or at the heels of their mothers and frequently of their fathers is in the present deplorable state of the kingdom a very great additional grievance. And therefore, whoever could find out a fair, cheap, and easy method of making these children sound and useful members of the Commonwealth would deserve so well of the public as to have his statue set up for a preserver of the nation. Spoiler alerts coming for Jonathan Swift's modest proposal. Uh, Dr. Swift uh, sets himself up as that particular person who is going to come up with a solution. (laughs) 
and then yeah, have indeed. a statue of himself set up. Um, but his solution is that what we do with these three or four or six infants trailing after their mothers and sometimes their fathers, uh, it's the little asides with Swift that are the ones you got to pay attention to, uh, is that we should cook them and eat them and use their skin for leather products uh, all throughout the country. Um, and uh, as with many great satirical pieces of work, about 20% of the reading population got it. And mm. about 80% of the reading population, you know, we're, we're cr quickly crying out for Jonathan Swift's, you know, execution and excommunication. Right. Um, but the real, the real killer of A Modest Proposal, after he lists all of the ways that eating babies and using their skin for leather products is the way to go, he employs a really strong rhetorical device of other people say that the thing that should be done for these children of Irish mothers is that they should be fed and educated. And that person is so obviously not in touch with the realities of this case. And he's just like, and he like slips in the actual solution as his straw man. Mm. Uh, and I really feel like that is happening all the time in this book. This mm. kind of like, well, we couldn't possibly do things that would be, you know, fair and equal uh, in terms of verticality. And, um, yeah, I'm just I, I'm just really, really enjoying the kind of high wire act of this. What I really think is a piece of like incredibly powerful satire. Yeah. And it makes me think how hard that would be to do today. I mean, of course, apparently it's always been hard. Right. And it, and it is it's a frustrating thing for the literary wag. Right. Because you don't want to give it away too much because the joke is funnier if you don't break character. But then yes. again, not everybody is literary enough to pick up the winks. And so if you're trying to have an impact and win people to the side of your argument, it can be hard to do it. Um, and it is, it's really funny to me, you know, as somebody who lurks on Twitter, how often I feel like irony is missed uh, in the world. And... Um, you know, I, I, I don't know what to make of it exactly other than I wish we were a little bit more literate because I think it's often there. You know, it's often mm -hmm. oh, you, the writer is is saying the person who figures this out should get a statue. That's I mean, that's sort of similar to saying, like, you know, apart from my modesty, my sense of humor is my greatest quality. To me, it's such an obvious <laughs> setup. Now, of course, the fact that like we recently had a president who would say things like that unironically does confound and confuse the issue, but you have to know something about the speaker, I suppose, in order to parse yeah. the irony. Um, and that, that's, that's kind of my question here about tone of voice. Like, uh, you know, this is, I was thinking, uh, like, one thing that might be fun to do here and there with the show is every now and then, like, we get a piece of writing that really, really helps show off a, a, liter a literary device. And I think tone is so often confused with mood and atmosphere mm. uh, that I think that this book here um, is is a really good way in to talking about tone of voice. Um, yeah. How how what would you describe this speaker's narrator's tone of voice? Like how if you if you heard this person sort of speaking on like a you know, like a sidewalk preacher or something like that. How would you how would you describe this this speaker's tone of voice? 
Okay, you know in... Did you watch The Wire? Yes. Okay, do you remember in the newspaper scene, there's kind of like an old copy editor who everybody brings their copy to, and he sort of, you know, pulls out his reading glasses and takes a look at it and says... 52 people were not evacuated. At least, I don't think that their innards, you know, were then resplendent upon the streets of Baltimore. I think what you mean to say is the building was evacuated. You know, and um, there's, something, there's something of that. There's something of the kind of soft-spoken but carries a big literary stick quality. Yeah. A wry observer, a very bright man who can do the Saturday, Saturday New York Times crossword in about a half an hour while drinking Guinness at the Irish pub and talking to his friends. Um, that, to me, is the tone of... Yeah. of it is a wry observer who's... who's and this is where I get Dickens, too, you know, where Dickens, I remember at one point where he's talking about the various prostitutes, and I, I can't remember, I think it's in Oliver Twist, you know, and refers to one character saying that she would be blessed um, uh, before she would do the thing that, you know, one of the other characters is asking her to do. And, of course, he's saying she, she you know, she's swearing she would be damned, um, which was yeah. a much worse, um, for most people, swear at the time because it was blasphemy than it, it appears to us today. Um, so Dickens basically using elevated, ironic language to to actually suggest something a lot lower and a lot more uh, disreputable. Um, I think the reading I have queued actually will speak to this, so I'm, nice. I may Let's transition it. into it. Yeah. Um, but that is, and it, it, that is the voice that I'm hearing, and I also think that there's a particular African-American quality to it in the sense of, a kind of ironic remixing of the language of the oppressor. Yeah. With, but with love, right? You know, that he, here is a writer who's read probably Dickens and Jonathan Swift with mm. great joy and is taking a kind of elevated, high tone. He's not writing... He's not writing in working-class speech. He's writing in no. sort of literary... Uh, uh, speech, but he's talking about matters of concern to the working man and the working woman um, and to the oppressed person um, and doing it with a kind of wry irony throughout. Yeah. Um, so, so this is... Um, we've learned that the municipal building has in fact been named after Fanny Briggs, who's sort of like Harriet Tubman. And we've learned that uh, Lila May, as a child, did a uh, kind of like book report or presentation on Fanny Briggs after hearing a famous uh, black actress uh, read a monologue uh, of mm -hmm. Fanny Briggs on the radio. And so the first thing we hear is a sort of um, description of her as a young girl listening to that on the radio. And then it kind of gets bigger. Um, so this is Lila May listening to the radio as a kid. The actress's voice was iron and strong and did not fail to summon applause from the more liberal quarters of her audience who remembered about noble struggle. Tiny particles of darkness pressed beyond the cracked, weedy mesh of the speaker. 
the kind of unsettling darkness Lila May would later associate with the elevator well. Of course, she would do her oral report on Fanny Briggs. Who else was there? Now, she's also driving in traffic right now, too, as she's remembering this. Not much progress in this traffic, but times are changing. In a city with an increasingly vocal colored population who are not above staging tiresome demonstrations for the lowlier tabloids or throwing tomatoes and rotten cabbages doing otherwise perfectly orchestrated speeches and rallies, it only makes sense to name the new municipal building after one of their heroes. The mayor is not stupid. You don't become the ruler of a city this large and insane by being stupid. The mayor is shrewd and understands that this city is not a southern city. It's not an old money city or a new money city, but the most famous city in the world. And the rules are different here. The new municipal building has been named the Fannie Briggs Memorial Building. And there have been few complaints and fewer tomatoes. (laughs) Okay, to continue our, our, our sort of analysis of tone... What is this speaker's attitude about this particular situation? What is the speaker's well, attitude about the mayor, about the colored population? What what is what is this speaker saying without saying it? So so the speaker is sympathetic to the black population, um, but he is writing it from the perspective of the power brokers and the mayor. Uh-huh. So he's describing the black demonstrators as tiresome, disrupting otherwise perfectly orchestrated speeches, um, tiresome demonstration for the lowly or the tabloids. Um, and the mayor is described as being shrewd enough to realize that this isn't a southern city, this isn't a new money city, that this is a constituency that you have to kind of pacify and you got to throw them a bone. So we're going to go ahead and, and, and he's writing it from the perspective of the mayor perhaps talking to one of his fellow power brokers, a wealthy donor or a kind of, you know, no man, a kind of secretary of state type. Um, but he's, he's pushing the language a little bit, a little bit more than somebody in that position would. Um, uh, and also the fact that our protagonist is a black woman helps us right. understand that the narrator is um, sympathetic. Um, and, yeah, and so, how do we, what are the words that clue you into that reading? Like, how do you pull that out of there and be like, oh, this is, this is, because it's complicated, right? Satire right. is so complicated. Like, very often it's, it's, it's ironic. Yeah. And so first we have to sort out, okay, what's, who's the target? Who is the butt of the joke? Um, and I think in this case, the the mayor is the butt of the joke. The mayor and his ilk. You and know, his ilk. The, yes, the exactly. That's groups. exactly what. Yeah. yeah. And his and you know, it's something. It would be something like, and his feathered ilk or his tuxedoed ilk or right. something. His brethren, you know, something like that. Right. Um, yeah. So we have to figure out who the butt of the joke is, and then you know, the the attitude here is this kind of like muffled. Not rage, but certainly like this, this isn't fair. Like this isn't right. 
the way right. that you know the yeah that the 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 their 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 demonstrations are called tiresome. But yeah, like what are the how do you how do you work your way through this thicket of irony and satire to understand what's being said? It's a great question, and and I mean I think this is this is this is like irony one hundred and one, and it's hard. I mean I think that you know a a lifelong reader develops a kind of intuitionist like antenna where you're not even necessarily aware of how you're picking it up you just are aware so you're asking actually something that's kind of challenging but i do think part of it is the positionality of what we know about the positionality of the writer and who the protagonist is if the protagonist was the mayor um you know a a um a heroic waspy a uh, talented political figure trying to use bold leadership to bring this city into the 20th century and having to knit together uh, all sorts of troublesome constituencies, then maybe maybe it would be harder to pick that up. But we know it sounds that, like you're describing like an Anne Rand novel at this point. Uh, yeah, <laughs> with the I same mean, the same problems with an Anne Rand novel. In, 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 indeed, although I mean, you know, you you have like you could think of the nonfiction work of Robert Caro, right? Which is yeah. which is both critical but also marveling at the capacity of two great power brokers, you know, uh, Lyndon Johnson and uh, Robert Moses. You know, and and this is a very Robert Moses feeling sort of book in the same way that Motherless Brooklyn. Uh, at least the movie was. Um, But then I think the other thing that's happening is that the adjectives are kind of turned up to 11 a little bit. Um, if, if we were supposed to be sympathizing with the mayor, I don't know that the mayor would be thinking and his ilk would be describing the demonstrations as tiresome for the lowly or the tabloids, because that sounds a bit classist, doesn't it? And wouldn't necessarily be describing the speech as perfectly, otherwise perfectly orchestrated speech, right? That sounds a little bit complainy and whiny. Like I went out and was about to deliver this perfectly orchestrated speech and these tiresome Negroes started throwing tomatoes at me. You know, that that sounds classist and whiny. Um, the mayor is shrewd, so it's also very complimentary of the mayor. Uh, you don't become the ruler of a city this large and insane by being stupid. So he's he's at once insulting the constituents and praising the mayor in his own mind. It's not a southern city, so we're othering other places. It's not an old money city. We're othering old money. It's or a new money city. It's it's othering new money, but the most famous city in the world. And now we're celebrating the power broker at that the at the helm of this particular city. Um, so it is overly generous. Uh, to the point of comically generous uh, yeah. to the butt of the joke. Um, and it is overly um, exaggeratedly insulting of all of these other forces and factors that he has to contend with. And I think that's how I think that's yeah. how we pick it up. And then there's also the sort of, you know, there's the sort of callback of the complaints and the tomatoes, the poetic, there have been few complaints and fewer tomatoes. There's a rhythmic callback to that, too, that sort of suggests that there's something playful in the language as yeah. well. Um, but yeah, what I miss? Uh, no, professor? I think, I mean, I think you nailed it. Like, I mean, I th- this is this is definitely one of my bugaboos about uh, the, the, the confusion of tone with mood. Mm. And I get it. I understand because... The word tone has come to mean a lot of different things. And especially, I think I think the inclusion of the word tone as something that we do with our audio devices, 
um, has sort of washed over into like, oh, tone is the same as mood. And mo mood is the overarching emotional feeling of a literary work. Um, yeah. You know, if we're talking about Tessa the D'Urbervilles, you might say that there's kind of a like huge glowering, foreboding feeling of that entire novel. Because it is. Like, the, yeah. like the, every single page, you're kind of like, oh, something bad is going to happen. And it does. Um, but tone is the author's attitude towards his or her subject material. And I really think that, yeah, you're, you're really working through. I mean, the, the word shrewd is such a perfect choice because it is both complementary and it's a little pejorative. Like, shrewd it can be deployed in a kind of winking, like, oh, that is a shrewd person. It's not 100% positive. You're not saying that is a smart person. Another thing, too, now that I'm thinking about it, and I, I had thought about bringing this up in another context, and well, I will share that context, which is I do a lot of my work right now is editing um, yeah. and basically helping writers write um in greater accordance with what they're actually trying to express. Um, and um, one of my uh, impulses as an editor is to uh, remove adjectives, um, especially adjectives that are not things like red or, you know, above. Um, mm. I guess above is sort of a preposition, um, but red totally. or, um, you know, Southern or extremely objective and not very laden with value and tone because, you know, for a couple of reasons. And one is, is that people just tend to overwrite sentences and people have this sense that literary, beautiful writing is florid, uh, purple yeah. sentences like, you know, the dappled light uh, meandered its way through the effervescent green maples of early spring and played oh, upon God. the diaphanous gown of the young maiden and that's you know that's crappy writing um but it's people great. when they there there are people i mean anytime you're using diaphanous diaphanous I, like, probably you pull get, it you out get one everybody well but but also if you're gonna use an adjective i think there are a couple lessons from this and one is use a very very specific adjective in a very very specific way so the cracked yeah. weedy mesh mm. the speaker what a what is, a description it is a beautifully oh, descriptive now if you were to say the austere mesh of the speaker or you were to say the stately mesh yeah. of the speaker those are a little bit vague i mean maybe you could get away with it a little bit but um i could see austere mesh, mesh of the speaker if if it's like if if we're like if this is like a like a a loving article about Kraftwerk, you know, right, like that right, could right. really see the austere mesh of the speaker showing up and and fitting perfectly in there. But what you're talking about is suiting that your diction to your project, right, right, and and not use. There are a lot of adjectives people use that are sort of like. Basically, you're just trying to say good, but you don't want to say good. Yeah. So you're sort of like dynamic, a real dynamic group. That they're, they're adjectives that actually are making what you're saying increasingly vague. And it would be yes. better to just be descriptive. And I think the other thing in this particular case of satire is he's using a lot of adjectives. Tiresome, orchestrated, famous, rotten. Um, 
it, well, Rotten's a good one in this particular case, but I think that's also part of the clue to the irony, which is to say, if these things were really true, this mayor and his ilk wouldn't need to be using the adjectives. They would be simply yes. apparent. So the fact that we're using so many adjectives is also a sense that there's some spin going on here, that somebody is self-aggrandizing or somebody is doing politics or somebody is doing bullshit. And in fact, all of these things are happening. And, you know, maybe the mayor is shrewd, but, but still, this is a political creature who's paying more attention to appearances and, uh, than the substance. It's not necessarily saying that a, a burning lust for justice is what led to the Fannie Briggs Memorial Building getting that name, that somebody right. recognized that this might make a particular constituency just a little bit less likely to throw rotten tomatoes, and sure enough, it did. And, it it um, did, but probably prob has not assuaged the issue that led to the desire to throw tomatoes in the first place. Indeed. Uh, Indeed. I mean, it is, is something a... of a Band-Aid. It, it exactly. It is something, yeah. It's something of a cosmetic addressing yeah. of the topic. Um, I want to uh, I want I want to return to Swift for a second, just because I really mm -hmm. think it's the same the same kind of thing that we're talking about. Um, this is the section I was talking about about like him bringing up the other possible solutions to the problem. Mm. Um, so we've we've gotten to this point through his uh, his six his six to seven different benefits um, of 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 how you should eat why we should eat, be eating Irish babies. Um, but uh, here we go. I can think of no one objection that will be possibly raised against this proposal unless it should be urged that the number of people will be thereby much lessened in the kingdom. This I freely own and was indeed one principal design in offering to the world. I desire the reader will observe that I calculate my remedy for this one individual kingdom of Ireland and for no other that ever was, is, or I think ever can be upon earth. Therefore, let no man talk to me of other expedients, of taxing our absentees at five shillings a pound, of using neither clothes nor household furniture, except what is our, our own growth and manufacture, of utterly rejecting the materials and instruments that promote foreign luxury, of curing the expensiveness of pride, vanity, idleness and gaming in our people, of introducing a vein of parsimony, prudence, and temperance, of learning to love our country. I mean, those are like several very good expedients <laughs> to fixing the problem of poverty in your country, especially the uh, curing the expensiveness of pride, vanity, idleness, and gaming in our people. Um, right, you know, right. Swift, the, Swift the does man. have... Yeah, exactly. Swift does have a little bit of uh, there's a little flavor of the conservative in him, but this is mostly a uh, mostly a brilliant example of what we're talking about, about like, how do you yeah. get across a message to a population that just won't listen? And I really think that Colson Whitehead is, is coming out guns a blazing in this in this uh, in this debut novel. Uh, yeah, guns a blazing or but with silencers. You know, yeah, exactly. Like, like I mean, it's 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 strong. Like there is yeah. there there is a really. I mean, I, I would say the tone of voice, is, the the tone here is muffled rage. Right. Yeah, I'm imagining the sly middle aged man at the end of the bar, kind of commenting 
uh, with with some taking pleasure in the disgust, you know, mm-hmm. um, somebody who is a deep cynic um, and is whose cynicism is well earned because yeah. he's been around the block and, it, and, it, and you know, that's impressive for such a young. I think he was a pretty young writer when this came yeah. out, too, probably in his 30s, if not 20s. Um, but, you know, uh, structural racism ages you, I, I presume, um, or at least it, it, it um, ages your mind. Um, but uh, yeah, let's do, let's hear about the perfect lift. Actually, okay, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna switch. I'm gonna go. I had two readings queued up here. Uh, the 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 mural on page 47, um, which is um, which is very which is also in the Fanny Briggs Memorial Building. Um, but um, okay, the lobby of the Fanny Briggs Memorial Building was almost finished when she arrived. As if to distract from the minuscule and cramped philosophy of what would transpire on the floors above, the city offered visitors the spatial bounty of the lobby. The ersatz marble was firm underfoot like real marble, sheer and produced trembling echoes effortlessly. The circle of Doric columns braced the weight above without complaint. The mural, however, was not complete. It started out jauntily enough to Lila May's left, Cheerless Indians holding up a deerskin in front of a fire. The original tenants, sure. (laughs) A galleon negotiating the tricky channels around the island. Two beaming Indians trading beads to a gang of white men. The infamous sale of the island. Big moment, have to include that. The first of many dubious transactions in the city's history. They didn't have elevators yet. That's why the scenes look so flat to Lila May. The city is dimensionless. The mural jumped to the revolution then, she noticed, skipped over a lot of stuff. The painter seemed to be making it up as he went along, like the men who shaped the city. The revolution scene was a nice set piece, the colonists pulling down the statue of King George III. They melted it down for ammunition, if she remembers correctly. It's always nice when a good mob comes together. The painting ended there. Yeah. Man, that's good. Well, and it, it merges the irony of the narrator's voice with, I mean, it, it, you're merging it with Lila May's voice, too. It's almost like they're the same in yeah. that moment. Why, why did you pick that? I, I picked it because I, I really, the thing I'm really enjoying about this book is the, is the combination of this kind of like Chabon-esque literary like flights of fancy um, and the, the technical brilliance of the prose combined with a real kind of social satire um i you know we have we have so many pieces of great social satire i've brought up american psycho before um but one of the problems with like american psycho if we're gonna pick a target to satirize like 1980s wall street excess is pretty easy you know I mean, yeah. it's a great book, and it really handles that subject excellently. But like the way that that passage does things, like oh, a little like you know, many dubious transactions happened in the history of the island. <laughs> I mean, it's just this marvelous like again, it's this great piece of like tone. But we're really starting to hear, and there's that little bit about the the city was dimensionless. Yeah. We're starting to learn that one of the things that is really valued in this world is this kind of vertical movement. He's he's taking this idea of like social upward mobility and making it a, a literal denotative thing. 
Um, he's the, 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 the elevators are capital S symbols for moving vertically in the social structures of the world. And of course, given what we're seeing about the racial plight of black people in this world and what we know about the racial plight of people of color in our world is that that verticality is essentially denied to them. And we get all of that with the grumpy Indians, then the beaming Indians who are getting, you know, bilked uh, out of uh, out of their land, um, all wrapped up in this uh, like piece of scene setting as well. Like yeah. he's doing so many things at once in so many passages in this book it's one of the it's it's the kind of book that makes you despair about writing. Some some authors make you want to run to your keyboard, and Colson Colson Whitehead makes me worried to ever write a sentence ever again. Hmm. Yeah. Um, don't give up. <laughs> so, no, no, I'm sure, no. We, sh- we shouldn't. I, you know, we shouldn't ever but give up. I'm sure Colson White and his Whitehead writes a lot of clunkers too. You know, oh, it for is sure. A craft. Yeah. But um, you know, I think I, there's another thing I want to talk about. But I think because of the time, we should talk about it next time. And I think it relates to thinking versus feeling. But I also think yeah. it relates to the verticality. And I also think it relates to the question of why Lila May wants to go after the black box too. Yeah. Um, because I think there's actually a broader concept here that is beyond, sure, it is pretty easy to make the comparison. I mean, the term in, you know, black newspapers in the early 20th century for what a race man does, meaning somebody who is a hero um, in the black community is to uplift the race. You know, that was the term that, that was, huh. you know, W.E.B. Du Bois and others. You, you read oh, that marvelous. a lot, uplift, uplift the race. And so, I mean, it's, it clearly seems like that's part of it. But I think, I th- I, think the t- the, I think the test will be, you know, will Lila May find the black box? I suspect probably so. Otherwise, it would be kind of a boring story. Um, what will she do with it? Yeah. I think will be the test. And I think, th- I think that's going to be a very interesting question for the, the latter half of the book. Do you want to move to trivia? Sure. Um, so uh, this book talks about and even dramatize is Elijah Otis, the inventor of the safety elevator. Uh, so elevators mm. that mm-hmm. if, they, if they encounter a mishap will be uh, stopped in their tracks uh, by something without... Uh, plummeting to you know their their doom um right what was the first vertical not a funicular counterweighted human powered elevator was it a london bridge not to be confused with tower bridge the big one uh burned down in the 17th century uh it was rebuilt during charles ii's reign uh, and he had a rudimentary suspension system built into the bridge that featured a small elevator that traveled up and down with the drawbridge. B. Emperor Taizu of the King the yeah King Dynasty ordered an elevator built towards the end of his life, also in the early 17th century, so he could travel between floors of the palace without having to be littered there uh, because he was vain and didn't want to be seen carried around in his dotage. Or was it C, 
Louis XV had one installed in Versailles so he could surreptitiously visit his mistress, whose apartments were on the second floor of the palace. Hmm. What are, so clarify, what are we defining as an elevator? Or do you, do you have a working definition of an elevator? Because I'm just imagining, you know, block and tackle, like lifting a painter up, of course, and that being something that would happen much earlier than that, I think the the uh, the definition here of these particular elevators is that they're counterweighted, they're counterweighted. Uh, so that they're going to be able to tra travel up and down with really not very the little attendant, power. Yeah, necessary for power. OK, so the options are London Bridge, uh, Qing Dynasty, Empire, Emperor or Louis. I think that Louis was not concerned about whether or not anybody saw him visiting his mistresses. Um, I don't know about London Bridge, but I... Now, this is interesting, though, because the, the elevator then with the counterweight does, I believe, make more appearances in Western civilization than Eastern civilization. But I've never, I don't know, I'm just guessing. But I'm going to go with B, the, the Qing Dynasty Emperor. I have written two strong falsehoods. Uh, it was Louis XV. Ah. Wow. Interesting. Yep. Interesting. Yep. For some Oof. reason, and maybe I'm, you know, maybe it's because of in Neil Stevenson's Baroque cycle, uh, Louis is actually at pains to be thought to be having an assignation with a mistress when in fact something else is going that's on. Amazing. So maybe that's what, maybe Neil Stevenson threw me off. Wow. I'm on a bit of a losing streak right now. All right. Um, mine is also uh, a question about the history of vertical conveyance. However, however, in this case, I was inspired by good old Chuck Gould to look ah. into the history of the escalator, uh, which I love that this is mostly a book. Um, set in the world of elevator inspectors and elevator uh, technologists and operators. But a little, there's time for a little bit of escalator digression in the form of a little bit of a discussion of Chuck Gould. Um, <laughs> so, um, my question is pretty simple. Uh, which of the following was not a name used for what we now call escalators? Oh, I love this question. Okay, ready? <laughs> so, not a name. A, elevator, B, endless conveyor, C, unenclosed lift, or D, electric staircase? I think it's either A or D. Now my brain is trying to figure it. My brain's trying to figure out the intersection of electricity and possible escalation. Um, whether those two things would be happening at the same time, or if there were any way to make an escalator that was not electric. Like if there were analog or steam or hydraulic powered uh, escalators before electric ones. Um, I'm going to go with A, elevator. 
In fact, it is C, the unenclosed lift. Darn it. I really wanted that one to be... One of the earliest patents for an escalator was referred to it as an elevator, apparently. And apparently the term elevator was not... that The, the term lift was a little bit more common um, at, yeah. at one point. What makes until sense. Maybe, until maybe Otis um, mm-hmm. came along uh, with his uh, safety elevator. Oh, well, so... Some tough trivia there. Uh, yeah. uh, those were toughies. But uh, I do love, I, I love kind of like what we were getting at, the, the sort of broad scale and scope and depth of the intellectual, social, and cultural import of vertical conveyance in this yeah. book. Yeah. Uh, yeah, totally. I think, the, I think the attraction that we're feeling with this book is the combination of, a, of an almost laughably pedestrian... Yeah. experience as the backdrop and plot device of something that is much bigger and much more important. I do think that probably we talk about the skyscraper being sort of born in Chicago and New York and really, really achieving the sort of height that we're that you know that we associate with real skyscrapers with uh breakthroughs in steel and creating new steel alloys and structural um but you really wouldn't have skyscrapers without vertical conveyance you know you you need something like that uh it's absolutely true and and they they were perfected around the same time as the skyscraper now i don't know if that's because the elevator was invented and then suddenly people could build taller buildings or if they were deciding they needed to build taller buildings and realizing, well, we need a technology that will get people to the top much more yeah. quickly. Imagine it's a little bit more the latter than the former because, you know, if Louis the Fifteenth's, you know, personal carpenter could figure out how to make one, uh, the basic technology is not that complicated. Right. I don't yeah, think. Totally. Counter- but yeah, totally. Way- I, I think, I think we're, we're enjoying, yeah, I mean, like that, the, the enjoyment of this novel is exactly what you're describing is like this, uh, like there is this sort of cultural and social thing that's happening. And yeah, skyscrapers and building upward has always been a, a part of the human experience. I mean, the hanging gardens of Babylon, pyramids, cathedrals, like, yeah, let's get to the heavens. I mean, just the the human impulse to park your car at the side of the road and run up the nearest hill um, is attendant. It's and, that. And then there's also the sort of capitalistic Yes. Uh, maximizing the value of the square footage of land in dense yeah. urban spaces. You know, there's a famous quote that a skyscraper is a machine to make the land pay. Nice. Uh, oh, you know, glorious. What yeah. A, what a the, the, talk about talk about tone. Indeed. You know, like the that's a short sentence. And you can hear what the author's attitude about his subject material is in that tone. The words machine and pay and land are the things that really clue us into what is actually going, the critique that is behind that, that sentence. Yeah, yeah, although, I mean, it, it's interesting because I think it could be read a couple of different ways. I actually think this writer was maybe marveling at that sort of, uh-huh. you know, the way in which form follows function and, and yeah. that the function in, in, in at least capitalist real estate design is is often about making money where in, in you know in former eras say in a theocracy or in a feudal system they also went high but that was more about uh, projecting power right that was one one person got to go high <laughs> one one person got to go high or one yeah. institution got to go yeah. high 
all of that. But anyway, um, I'm going to go ahead and tell everybody what's next, which is we're going to read the second half of this wonderful book. Uh, we're excited um, to see what happens. Um, I think there's there's already questions developing for me about the second half. And I, I think Lila May's kind of motivation and what's driving her to pursue the MacGuffin is something I both intuitively understand, but also I'm really looking forward to unpacking next time. Nice. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Um, please rate and review the show. Remember, if you give us a five-star rating, we will read your review on the air, which is really fun if you'd like us to read it, read it on the air. And Upper Middle Brow is a small point production. Chris Bag and Jesse Dukes approach all of this from an evenly empirical and intuitive point of view. Music is oh, by indeed. Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes, and design and website is by me, Chris Bag. You can learn more about us at uppermiddlebrow.com or at all the places on social. We're on Twitter at Upper Middle Pod. We're on Instagram at upper underscore middle underscore brow. And uh, we would love to hear from you. Let us know what you thought about our summer reading series and where you would like us to go in the future upward and onward and one more thing i'll say is that we i just got a notification today that we are the number 44 podcast in books in sweden yes <laughs> thank you sweden <laughs> listening to upper middle brow amazing i wonder, I wonder how, how many, many podcasts, book podcasts. <laughs> maybe we beat out 45 maybe we're maybe yeah. we're yeah that's the most important thing who's below us Exactly. Who are we on top of now? <laughs> Indeed. Hello, folks. Before we let you go, I have a quick update. We are planning a live upper middle brow draft very soon. The draft is our process for picking out our next series of books or other cultural production that we're going to watch or read and talk about for the podcast. So that will be this Wednesday, August 3rd at 7 p.m. Eastern time. We're still working on the logistics of how we're going to do that live. So stay tuned to our social media channels or check the blog at uppermiddlebrow.com. We expect to have instructions posted by Tuesday evening, the 2nd. And a reminder, Chris and I are both writers and editors, and we can help you with your writing, podcasting, or editing project. We are not cheap, but we are reasonably priced, and we are very good. Uh, you can see our portfolios and learn more at our respective websites, chrisbag.com. And I'm happy to announce that jessedukes.com is back after a many-year hiatus. So check them both out. Get in touch if you want to talk about how we can help you with your project, big or small. <laughs>